Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Crimopedia. I'm your host Allison and before we get started today I just wanted to say thank you to all the new supporters I've gotten on my show especially since I put out my last episode. Uh, if you don't know I have an Instagram set up for this account now so feel free to follow me at crimopediapod on Instagram or you can email me at crimopediapod at hotmail.com. Remember, Crimopedia spelt like encyclopedia at hotmail.com. Today, I have an Australian case for you. One that was solved very, very recently and went unsolved for over two decades. If you are well-versed in the true crime community, then you likely already know about it. But if not, I hope you appreciate my retelling of the story and hopefully I can do this case some justice. Without further ado, let's jump right in. throughout 1997, three young women all went missing in the Claremont area of Western Australia. Two of them were discovered a short time later, deceased, and the third, to this day, has never been found. If you're anything like me, you have been anxiously awaiting the outcome of this case for some time, and seeing it get solved pretty recently was incredible. In 2020, after over two decades, Australian citizens finally got to see the man coined as the Claremont serial killer put behind bars. Today, I'm going to be telling you about his victims and how this killer was finally apprehended after getting away with it for so long. In 1996, Sarah Spears, a blonde 18-year-old girl, was on the cusp of starting her adult life. She had grown up in the Australian countryside and attended boarding school in Perth, Western Australia, until she was ready for college. Armed with her infectious smile and endless potential, she then moved into an apartment in the city of Perth with her older sister, Amanda, who was also in college and working numerous part-time jobs. Sarah was very thoughtful, especially when it came to her family. She always had them on the forefront of her mind and was said to be very family-orientated. In mid-January of 1996, Sarah and her sister took a drive down to visit their family home and discuss how to plan Amanda's upcoming 21st birthday party. When it was time for the girls to head back to their apartment in Perth, their dad, Don Spears, recalls hugging them both at least four times before they actually got in the car and started driving away. There were his two daughters, both heading on a fast-tracked path for success in college, just barely beginning the launching phase of their lives. Don said in an interview that as he watched Sarah and Amanda pull out of the driveway that day and start heading back to their home, he thought to himself, Man, I hope they just both stay safe until we can all see each other again. Don had no idea that this would be the last time he would ever see his youngest daughter, Sarah, ever again. On January 26th of 1996, Sarah and her friends were enjoying an outdoor concert together and were all planning out how they were going to spend the rest of their evening. Her older sister, Amanda, either offered or was asked to drive Sarah and her friends to the Ocean Beach Hotel that night in Perth, where they could go clubbing and grab some drinks. Mind you, the legal drinking age in Australia is 18. 
Amanda, being the oldest sibling, had no trouble with this at all. Driving her sister around was something she did relatively often if needed. At around midnight that same night, Amanda was actually called back to the Ocean Beach Hotel hours after she dropped them off because Sarah and her group of friends were requesting another ride, but this time to Club Bayview in Claremont, which was about a 15 minute drive away from the Ocean Beach Hotel, depending on traffic. At approximately 2 a.m. that early morning of January 27th, Sarah had enough of Club Bayview and so she left. She spoke with the security guard briefly on her way out and at exactly 2.06 a.m. she called Swan Taxis from a public telephone booth. Interestingly, she said on the phone that her intended destination was the suburb of Mosman Park, approximately a 30-minute drive south from Club Bayview and in the complete opposite direction of her apartment in South Perth. Now, it's not unheard of for a young woman to meet someone at the club and spend the night with them, but Sarah was seen exiting Club Bayview alone. She was calling the taxi alone and then was seen waiting on the corner of Sterling Road and Sterling Highway alone. We can only speculate as to what her plans were that evening, but whatever they were, they wouldn't happen the way that Sarah intended them to. A witness who was seen driving by Sarah with his friend actually remarked to his friend that a pretty young girl like Sarah shouldn't be waiting alone outside for a cab at this time of night and suggested that him and his friends circle back to check on her, but they'd talk themselves out of it. Three eyewitnesses actually saw Sarah waiting for the taxi she called that night some of whom came forward saying that a car had actually stopped where she was waiting and was interacting with her, facing the wrong way on the road in the direction of oncoming traffic. But this was not Sarah's taxi. Sarah's cab arrived at 2.09 a.m. and Sarah was nowhere in sight. Known as outgoing and sociable with a playful, larrikin soul, Jane Rimmer was 23 years old in 1996 and was employed as a childcare worker. Jane and her three siblings grew up in the suburb of Shenton Park and spent holidays with their family at their cabin on Western Australia's southwest coast. The family spent a lot of time in the Claremont area as well, not too far from Shenton Park, which is exactly where Jane and her friends ended up being on the night of June 8th, 1996. They had spent some time that night clubbing at the Ocean Beach Hotel, like Sarah Spears had done just six months before. But Jane and her friends decided to move on to the Continental Hotel at some point during their evening. At around 11.30 that night, the crew decided to make one last stop at Club Bayview, also like Sarah Spears. Once they arrived, the group of friends noticed that the line for Club Bayview was a bit too long for their liking, and so they all agreed to just turn it in for the night and head home. All agreeing except for Jane. One of the friends present that night later speculated in an interview that Jane was maybe hoping to meet someone that night and go home with them, or maybe she just wasn't ready to turn in yet. Either way, she insisted that her friends move on without her that night. Many years later, police came out publicly with never-before-seen CCTV footage of Jane that night waiting outside of Club Bayview by herself, likely in hopes of crowdsourcing information about a certain unidentified male in the footage who approached Jane and started talking to her. 
In the clips, you can see Jane standing outside of the club holding her jacket when a male started to walk up to her and greets her. Jane looks excited and shocked, really, as if she's recognizing a really old friend that she hasn't seen in years, or as if this guy had just approached her with a super corny pickup line that you kind of can't help but laugh at in shock. Either way, police were able to actually track down and interview every single person in the CCTV footage from all angles except for this guy. He enters the frame, Jane looks really surprised, he talks to her for about 28 seconds, and then he's gone. The next shot, she's seen looking down at her watch, and then another 28 seconds later, and she's vanished from the footage. This clip of Jane is the last time she was ever seen alive. Of course, this made that mystery man an extremely important person of interest, especially given that police couldn't identify him and whoever he is, he never came forward after Jane disappeared. In 2004, Detective Jim Stanbury, head of the Western Australia Special Crimes Unit, decided to release this footage in, again, hopes of identifying this guy. After some backlash as to why this footage wasn't released in 1996 when it was captured, Jim Stanbury said that the police didn't want to narrow the investigation too much too soon. In fact, police were actually working multiple leads about the disappearances of both Sarah Spears and Jane Rimmer behind the scenes. Within 48 hours of Sarah going missing, her case was handed over to the Major Crimes Division of the Western Australia Police Division, and after the disappearance of Jane Rimmer, the police had set up a special task force coined Project Macro. Macro was intended to investigate the links between the two disappearances, and it led them in a very specific direction at first. Both victims were young, Caucasian, blonde women who were enjoying a night out with friends before ending up alone under different circumstances. We're not sure if Jane was waiting for a ride of some sort, although she did look like she was waiting for something on that footage, but we do know that Sarah for sure called Swan Taxis. And so at first, police zeroed in their investigation on taxi drivers in the area. A massive fingerprint initiative was carried out on thousands of drivers in Western Australia, and it was discovered that a large number of these drivers were actually operating illegally without license. Many taxis weren't legit or even affiliated with any company. They were just run by random people putting a sign on their car and driving strangers around. After this discovery, 78 drivers in the immediate Claremont area with a criminal history were terminated from driving and a major overhaul was conducted to raise employment and legitimacy standards for taxi drivers in Australia. However, after all that effort, the taxi driver angle didn't pan out at all in the disappearances of Jane Rimmer and Sarah Spears, and there were no significant developments in either case. That was until 55 days after Jane went missing, her nude body was found 25 miles or 40 kilometers south from where she went missing at Club Bayview in a bushland near Wolcoot Road in Wellard by a family picking wildflowers. 
the mother of this family was so distraught by her discovery that day that she couldn't bear to leave Jane's body unattended in the area, so she actually stayed with Jane's body until police arrived. In 1997, Kira Glennon was 27 years old and enjoying the law career that she had built for herself. Originally from Westport Co. Mayo in Ireland, she was practicing law in Australia, living in Mosman Park, and was actually out for a drink with her co-workers on the night of March 14, 1997. It was nearing St. Patrick's Day and so the clubs were quite busy, but her group settled on getting drinks at the Continental Hotel, the same one Jane Rimmer ended up at in the Claremont area. They arrived around 11pm, but Kira only stayed for a short time before leaving and being seen walking southbound along Sterling Highway at 12.30am by herself, which coincidentally is the same road that Sarah Spears was also seen waiting at the intersection of. In the early morning hours of March 15th, Three men at a bus stop saw her walking and one of them called out something to her, something to the effect of, oh, it's a bad idea to be hitchhiking, but Kira, being the independent woman she was, yelled something back about how she was fine and the men let her be. A few moments later, they noted her interacting with a light-colored vehicle believed to be either a VR or VS Holden Commodore station wagon, but none of the guys were paying enough attention to notice if she had gotten into the vehicle or had just kept walking. Either way, when they looked back, eventually both her and the vehicle were gone. This would be the last time that Kira Glennon was ever seen alive. Shortly after her disappearance, her family started the Secure Community Foundation, or the SCF, which was intended to raise money for extra resources that may be needed during the investigation into her whereabouts. But only 19 days later, on April 3rd of 1997, Kira's body was found semi-clothed approximately 25 miles or 40 kilometers north of the Claremont area near a track off of Pippadini Road in Eglinton by a laborer. Right away, Kira's disappearance and death was connected to Jane Rimmer and Sarah Spears, although still Sarah's body was not found, and in fact, to this day, that remains true. Western Australia police actually confirmed they were looking for a serial killer and the government was offering a $250,000 reward for any information about the women. At this time, many radio stations in Perth, Claremont, and the surrounding areas began broadcasting messages urging young women to stay in well-lit areas, stay with friends, and to let people know where they were going during the day and especially at night. Australian profiler Cloud Minasini and visiting FBI agent from the United States, David Caldwell, worked together to construct a criminal profiler of who the serial offender might be. Their offender profile consisted of very normal attributes. The offender was likely employed at a steady job and was local to the area. This was especially obvious because of the areas where Kira and Jane's bodies were left at were not somewhere that anyone unfamiliar with the area would have ventured to because it was so remote, it was like bushland. 
The suspect was also thought to be a tidy person, an organized person. He would be the type to take care of himself, but anyone close to him at the time of the disappearances may have noticed a heightened anxiety in him that he was having trouble hiding, but also had no explanation for. Otherwise, he was thought to be Mr. Ordinary. It was said that the way Kira Glennon and Jane Rimmer's bodies were disposed of, as well as the injuries they sustained during their murders, were vital to constructing this profile, but the cause of death, as well as details about their injuries, were never made public, and it's potentially because police were retaining that information to serve as holdback evidence. I'm not sure if the term holdback evidence is transferable to international investigations, but for those who don't know, in the Canadian judicial system, holdback evidence is referred to as evidence that police keep close to the vest, for a lack of a better term. Canadian police don't disclose the nature of holdback evidence to the media or other officers in their precinct or division or what have you. Ideally, so that the only people who know of the details of this evidence are the investigating officers and the perpetrator of the crime. This helps to not only solidify guilt if someone gives up details about a crime that are not known to the media, but also helps rule out voluntary false confessions, which are for some reason very popular when it comes to highly publicized or especially violent crimes. And this case was very highly publicized. The public was very invested into what happened to all three women. Police received over 50,000 calls to Crime Stoppers at the height of the investigation, with an average of 2,000 calls per day. And understandably so, all of this information became very overwhelming. But out of all of the information they were receiving, they were especially interested in the light-colored vehicle that was seen interacting with Sarah Spears and Kira Glennon. And in 1998, police had their sights set on their first major suspect. Lance Williams, a man from the Cottesloe area in Western Australia, was publicly named as the prime suspect in the murders of Kira Glennon and Jane Rimmer, as well as the disappearance of Sarah Spears. Lance Williams was a creature of habit, and like clockwork, he would circle the Claremont area in his light-colored vehicle aimlessly after midnight on multiple occasions. During a decoy operation, he actually picked up an undercover female officer, but nothing really panned out from this, and it turned out that he really was just offering random people rides home. The officer said that Lance was kind of odd and mostly just talked about himself before dropping her off at her requested destination. Ideally, this should have made police less suspicious of Lance Williams, but what happened instead was they dismissed this benign incident and opted to instead put the pressure on Lance even more, insisting that the only reason the decoy officer wasn't attacked was because she didn't exactly fit his victim profile. Eventually, Lance caught on to the fact that he was being investigated, and he maintained his innocence the entire time. Leading up to 2004, police were becoming increasingly suspect of a man named Peter Waggers, who was 62 at the time and was actually the former mayor of Claremont. Waggers was actually one of 100 men initially interviewed about the disappearances amongst the initial rush of activity in the investigation, but since then, at least in the eyes of the public, his involvement was mostly dismissed. 
That was until on September 15th in 2004, when his home was raided by police in a very public search of his property with media anxiously awaiting him outside. After giving up some DNA, he stormed outside and began talking to the media furious, claiming that this investigation and search was a gross invasion of his privacy. He spoke candidly about how his rights were being violated during this search, and speaking candidly to the media was something that Weggers did often, for better or for worse. Apparently, he was known not only as the former mayor, but also as someone who had a tendency to bring attention onto himself in very odd ways and get himself involved in some strange controversies. Only about a month before, on August 25th of 2004, police on Project Macro also searched another property of his in the suburb of Embleton, located in the outer regions of Perth. This search was less public, but police seized two vehicles belonging to a man by the name of Steve Ross, who was living in a van in the backyard of Peter Waggers' residence. Steve Ross was a 47-year-old man with a bit of an interesting history, some of which actually included telling police back in 1996 that he had picked up Sarah Spears in his own unaccredited taxi the night before she went missing and drove her to the Windsor Hotel in South Perth, only about a 20-minute drive from the Claremont area. Steve Ross was eager to propose a theory to police about how Sarah could have potentially gone missing. The night before she disappeared, she was in his cab with another male patron and a woman. The woman was dropped off first, but the unidentified man got out at Sarah's stop despite initially wanting to be taken further into the city. This man had gotten out with her and paid the entire cab fare. Ross proposed the idea that this man then had stalked Sarah and ventured out the next day to go find her and kidnap her. Police were suspicious of this theory on its own, but also the fact that Steve Ross was so enthusiastic to tell it, it didn't sit right with police. So instead of investigating Steve's theory as he told it, police began instead working the idea that Peter Weggers and Steve Ross were involved in a hypersexual relationship where Weggers exerted a quote, abnormal influence on Steve Ross and thus instructed Steve to go seek out young girls for him. But in a 44 point media statement made by Steve, he denied these claims in their entirety. George Papamihail, representing Peter Waggers, said that in his own independent investigation of the Claremont murders, he had found two alternative suspects, both more fitting to the crimes than his own client, and thus stated, if it's taken us one week to find them, then why has it taken police eight years? And despite all of the media attention that these two suspects got, and despite Steve Ross himself being questioned formally, Weggers was never questioned by police and this entire theory never really panned out. Police tried to see if the murders fit the profile of Bradley Murdoch, a man serving time in Australia for murdering British tourist Peter Falconio, or maybe Mark Dixie, who was a man convicted of killing a model from the UK named Sally Ann Bowman. But both men were cleared of involvement. Just as easily as the three women were snatched away from their lives, 20 years had gone by in the investigation with no more public leads. The taxi driver angle didn't pan out, the Waggers and Ross theory didn't pan out, and Lance Williams was being investigated, but nothing new was coming out of that. 
It seemed like no progress was being made on the case and frankly, many people thought that with each passing year, the hope for justice was slipping away. But former head of the macro task force, Paul Ferguson, was determined to renew the search for the Claremont serial killer in 2015, especially for Sarah's family who still had no closure regarding her whereabouts. As of 2004, police had stated they conducted 10 independent reviews of the case and that everything had been done to examine each minute detail. But fast forward to 2015, some people were skeptical of this, including Paul Ferguson. At this time, DNA technology was fast on the rise and crimes everywhere were being solved left and right using new genetic analysis techniques. It seemed as though nobody in the Department of Western Australia Police had thought up until 2015 to test all of the physical evidence they had found on the bodies of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon using these new techniques. And there was a lot of evidence that went untested. In fact, there was over 4,000 exhibits. Luckily for Paul Ferguson, it was all neatly booked and bagged, waiting in an evidence locker to be re-examined. As a consequence of this, in December of that year, investigators revealed that fibers taken from Jane's body and tested had belonged to a VS Series 1 Holden Commodore station wagon, the same type of vehicle thought to be interacting with Kira Glennon when she was last seen alive. Police also announced around this time that they were working on the theory that all three women did not get into the vehicles that approached them willingly, as previously thought when they were working the taxi driver angle. As well, one of the 4,000 untested samples of physical evidence that was next in line to be examined was the left thumbnail of Kira Glennon, which was recovered on autopsy. When tested, there were two complete DNA profiles found under the thumbnail. One was Kira's, and the other was an unknown male. Whoever this guy was, Kira fought him with all of her strength and successfully managed to take a piece of him with her. Police began looking into other crimes in the area around the time of the disappearances in Claremont, and they were able to match the unknown male profile with DNA found at the scene of a home invasion and attempted sexual assault in 1988. On February 15th of that year in Huntingdale, Western Australia, about 40 minutes from Claremont, an unknown intruder entered the home of an 18-year-old girl and her family through an unlocked door while everyone in the home was sleeping. The intruder proceeded to close the bedroom doors of her parents and brother and then unplugged the home telephone. He then went into the girl's bedroom and straddled her as she lay on her stomach asleep. As he was attempting to assault her, she woke up and began fighting, which consequently frightened him because he fled after she managed to scratch him. Oddly, the intruder left behind a pair of knitted stockings and a white embroidered kimono robe, which was clearly worn frequently by the perpetrator given how dirty it was. DNA left on this white kimono was later matched to the same unknown male profile found under Kira Glennon's left thumbnail. On February 1st of 1995, a 17-year-old girl walking in Claremont alone was grabbed from behind, gagged with a cloth, bound with her hands behind her back, and thrown into the back of a vehicle. She was taken to the Karakata Cemetery, only a five-minute drive from Club Bayview in Claremont, where she was violently sexually assaulted and left for dead in a bush. 
The victim survived and later ID'd her attacker driving away from the scene in what she described as a white van. DNA evidence left behind by the attacker was later then matched also to the same unknown male profile. Police now had the physical evidence to prove that they had one male committing terribly violent crimes in the Claremont area and had been doing so for years. Police kept digging and found old fingerprint evidence left at the scene of another attempted home invasion in the same area back in 1988. They were able to match these prints to a man named Bradley Robert Edwards, who was a Telstra telecom technician. At the time of this attempted break-in, if the prints were tested, they wouldn't have gotten a match, but Bradley screwed up and was able to secure his first conviction for a violent offense only a few years later in 1995 after he brutally attacked a social worker, Wendy Davis. Wendy was working in the Hollywood Hospital in Perth on the day that Edwards was working on the telephone wires in close proximity to her office. Bradley Edwards had snuck up behind Wendy while she sat at her desk and grabbed her, putting a cloth over her mouth and attempted to drag her out of her office chair and into a nearby washroom. Her chair fell out from underneath her, which must have alerted security because after a short struggle, Wendy was eventually rescued by a security guard who detained Edwards until police arrived. Despite the incredibly violent nature of this attempted assault and also being found to have cable ties in his pocket at the time of the attack, Edwards was charged with a common assault, which I believe in American terms translates to a misdemeanor, and he pleaded guilty to this, receiving only a probationary period and was required to attend a sex offenders program. Although the sentence for this conviction was extremely lenient, it secured a fingerprint match for police in the present day, and so they began watching Bradley Edwards and had him under surveillance. Eventually, they followed him into a movie theater. The investigators sat behind him during the entire movie and watched him sip away at a bottle of Sprite, which he left behind at the end of the movie, ripe for police's picking. Upon DNA testing, it was in fact the same DNA profile that matched the dirty white kimono, the rape kit in 1995, and the DNA underneath Kira Glennon's left thumbnail. On December 22nd of 2016 at 7am, Bradley Robert Edwards was arrested in his home in Kewdale as a part of a heavily armed tactical raid and he was charged with both the murders of Kira Glennon and Jane Rimmer. During the search of his home, a number of pieces of evidence were of particular interest to police, mostly computers, hard drives, USBs, that kind of stuff. What police found on these devices was an exceptional number of pornographic materials, especially that of a sadomasochistic nature and other violent erotica. He was also the author of brutal fantasy fiction, all stories depicting women being kidnapped and violently sexually assaulted. Edwards, like in 1995 when he assaulted Wendy Davis, was still working as a telecom technician for Telstra when he was arrested in 2016. Telstra had issued Bradley a VS Series 1 Holden Commodore station wagon for personal and company use, the same vehicle suspected to be seen interacting with Kira Glennon, and the same vehicle that fibers from Jane Rimmer's body belonged to. 
If that wasn't enough, police also found fibers from his work uniform on Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon, and in the evidence bin from that sexual assault on the 17-year-old girl in 1995 in the Karakata Cemetery. Despite the indisputable physical evidence, Edwards was in denial throughout all interrogations and even into the early stages of the trial. Cloud Minasini and David Caldwell were correct about Edwards in their criminal profile. He was everything that they predicted. He was community-orientated, he was normal, he was kind of nerdy, he was likable, he kept a good rapport with the people in his neighborhood, kept himself tidy-looking, he won community leadership awards, he was Mr. Ordinary. At the time of the arrest, Western Australia Police Commissioner Carl O'Callaghan stated that Project Macro was far from over. In fact, they would be expanding their investigation to other serious crimes in the area, considering how successful that was in finding out who committed the Claremont serial murders in the first place. He said that there's a lot of work to still be done, and Macro, to this day, has been the biggest and most complicated investigation that Western Australia police have ever seen lasting over two decades. Prosecuting attorney Carmel Barbagallo filed for a trial by judge only, which was granted due to the publicity surrounding this case and the graphic nature of the evidence. Thus being represented by defense lawyer Sam Von Dongen, the evidence against Edwards would be overseen by Court Justice Stephen Hall beginning on November 25th of 2019. During the trial, information about his previous assaults as well as the murders of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon came to light. It was revealed that Edwards actually lived relatively close to the home in Huntingdale in 1988 where he attempted to sexually assault that 18-year-old girl. As well, the social worker who was attacked in 1995, Wendy Davis, revealed in an interview that not only was Edwards not reprimanded at his job after the attack on her, but he was actually promoted. Allegedly, his employer stated that Edwards just cracked under the pressure of some relationship issues, but was otherwise a great guy and a model employee. Two days before Bradley Edwards was arrested for the murders, Wendy Davis was phoned by police to discuss her attack in detail, and she said that this was actually the first time anyone in authority had really cared about what happened to her. She said that being questioned about the attack by Carmel Barbagallo in court during Edwards' trial in 2019 was traumatic, but it was the right thing to do to secure the conviction. When questioning the witnesses who had seen Kira Glennon in the early hours of March 15, 1997, Edwards' vehicle was clearly identified as the one who was seen interacting with her. The witnesses who had seen Kira walking alone southbound down Sterling Highway had noted that although they didn't watch if she had gotten into the car willingly or not, they did say that the light-colored Commodore station wagon had distinct teardrop-shaped hubcaps that were unique to that specific model of vehicle. As well, that vehicle had the company logo of Edwards's telecom employer, Telstra, on it. During the trial, it also came out that there were at least five separate incidences where a male driving a Telstra-branded vehicle was spotted driving around looking at young women in the Claremont area who were walking alone and he tried to pick them up. 
As well, there was a few occasions where witnesses had spotted the same vehicle parked at the pedestrian entrance of the Karakata Cemetery, usually between the hours of 6pm and 7pm. This was the same area that the 17-year-old sexual assault victim was left at after Edwards had attacked her. This company vehicle was impounded the same day as the arrest, which is when police were able to match carpet fibers found on the bodies of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon to it. At some point during all the testimony, the elephant in the courtroom had to be addressed. Although it was very likely that Sarah Spears fell victim to Bradley Edwards' sexually deviated killing spree, as stated so by Justice Stephen Hall himself, her body has never been found and Edwards was still denying killing her. For those who don't know, securing a murder conviction on a no-body case is next to impossible to do. There are hardly any circumstances where you can discount all reasonable doubt as to whether or not somebody was murdered if you don't have the physical evidence to prove that they're even dead. So for all intents and purposes, Sarah Spears is still technically just missing. On June 25th of 2020, after hearing evidence from over 200 witnesses, Justice Stephen Hall handed down the 619-page verdict outlining the charges against Bradley Edwards for all the crimes he committed. Edwards was found guilty of all counts of sexual assault, kidnapping, and murder. All counts but one. Justice Stephen Hall said that, again, although it was more than likely that Edwards was the perpetrator of Sarah's disappearance and murder, there was simply not enough evidence to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. There's no word to this day on whether or not Edwards has even considered giving up information about her demise or the location of her remains, but he was convicted for absolutely everything else. And just like that, 20 years of investigations were over. The public could finally put a face and a name to the man who had been tormenting the Claremont and surrounding areas for the last two decades. Australian journalist Liam Barlett has speculated that 22-year-old Julie Cutler was a probable Claremont serial killer victim as well. She was a university student from Fremantle, which is about a 15-minute drive from Claremont in Western Australia. Julie vanished after leaving a staff party at the Parmelia Hilton Hotel in Perth, only 12 minutes away from Club Bayview in the Claremont area, around 9pm on June 20th, 1988. Julie's car was found in the Cottlesloe Beach area, actually close to the Ocean Beach Hotel, which was visited by both Sarah Spears and Jane Rimmer on the nights they went missing, but Julie's body, like Sarah's, was never found. As well, some people have speculated that Lisa Brown, a 19-year-old sex worker who disappeared on November 10th in 1998, and Sarah McMahon, who was 20 years old and disappeared on November 8th of 2000, could also both be Claremont killer victims. We don't know for sure if Bradley Edwards has committed any other violent crimes, but if none of these women are his victims, one theory put forward suggests that he stopped kidnapping and killing because of the fight that Kira Glennon put up in 1997. Kira was tough and he didn't take her very easily, so people hypothesized that it scared Edwards into dormancy. During Bradley Edwards' sentencing hearing, crowds were lined up outside all along the streets hoping for a chance to get in there and see justice served firsthand. 
These unsolved cases had left Western Australian citizens, especially in the Claremont area, feeling scared and jaded for over 20 years. Bradley Edwards was sentenced to 40 years for the murder of Jane Rimmer, another 40 years for the murder of Kira Glennon, 33 years for the attempted sexual assault in Huntingdale, and the same sentence for the rape in the Karakata Cemetery. All of these sentences are to be served concurrently, and he is eligible for parole after serving a minimum of 40 years. Despite being eligible for parole, Justice Stephen Hall concluded that Edwards will more than likely end up dying in prison. Seeing Bradley Edwards, the Claremont serial killer being handed down this essentially life sentence on December 23rd of 2020 was the last piece of closure needed for many Western Australian residents. But unfortunately, the fate of Sarah Spears is still unknown. Her family and most others do believe that she is deceased and was murdered by Bradley Edwards, but the search for her body does continue to this day and her case is still technically active. So if you know anything about the disappearance or whereabouts of Sarah Spears, you can call that information into Australian Crime Stoppers at 1-800-333-000. Thanks to everybody who was listening today. I hope you enjoyed this case and you'll be back to hear another one. Make sure to subscribe to my podcast wherever you're listening right now. Be well, everybody, and I'll talk to you soon.